Hi, welcome to this episode of A Cup of EJ, the podcast where you can learn a bit about the environmental justice movement in the same time it takes to drink a cup of coffee. If you tuned into the last episode, we talked about the environmental justice movement in New Jersey and the steps the EPA is taking. This week, we're diving more into the climate science aspect with our guest, Dr. Taylor. Dr. Taylor, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Patrick Taylor. I'm a researcher at NASA Langley Research Center, and my research focuses on uh, understanding Earth's radiation budget, that is, how much energy is coming in at the top of the atmosphere and going out from the Earth to, to space, uh, with a focus specifically on the Arctic and why the ch rapid changes that we're seeing in the Arctic are happening and what the implications are for the rest of the planet. Sweet. Um, and always, I'm your host, Miriam Anthony, and we also have a special guest. Hi, I'm your producer, Ria Goswami, and this podcast is brought to you by the Environmental Justice Coalition. So let's jump right in. One of the main things about the climate change, well, about the environmental justice movement in general, is that climate change is an environmental justice issue. It's one of the main issues, in fact because it impacts different communities of people disproportionately. Today's episode is a little bit different because we're focusing more on the science behind that and the research specifically in the Arctic. So for our listeners, um, Dr. Taylor, why the Arctic? Why is it so important to study one specific ecosystem? So that's a really great question that I get a lot. Uh, so first of all, one thing that I've learned about you know, our planet and our climate system on my more than 15-year journey through through science is that we live on an interconnected planet. So that means things, events, um, weather systems, you know, droughts on the other side of the planet kind of influence us and influence our daily lives. Uh, and that can happen through directly changing the characteristics of, our, of the land surface or, or the planet and therefore influencing our entire climate. Or, you know, there's a lot of interconnections through global the global economy and um, geopolitics that will cause you know events that are happening on the other side of the planet uh, wars or droughts to influence the the food supply and and the energy sector and all these interconnections so we care about the arctic because it's part of our planet and what happens there influences our daily lives as well as will influence uh, the future climate of our regions. Whether that's, you know, in the rapidly changing Arctic, we have lots of melting ice, warming temperatures. Uh, that's influencing the, uh, not just the physical nature of our planet, but the of our climate system, but also uh, melting glaciers and ice sheets lead to global sea level rise. So what happens in the Arctic is really uh, influencing everywhere. The warming in the Arctic is influencing uh, aspects of the weather patterns that we're seeing in in the mid latitudes of the planet where we live, uh, and then there are all kinds of other natural resource and economic implications uh, globally, and and national security implications, potential wars being fought in the Arctic in the future that can happen with a less icy and warmer Arctic as people fight over the natural resources and the sh new shipping lanes that are opening up. So it's it's a region that not just the rapid changes there are regions that is the reason we should care, but it really will affect and shape the, the, the future global economy that we're going to live in. That's really interesting. You mentioned everything being interconnected, so one thing will influence another thing. Mm -hmm. Within that, we know that some people are more directly impacted with the effects of climate change. So similarly, is there equivalence in what climate change here is impacting the Arctic and what Arctic changes are impacting here, or is it kind of less so? Uh, I think Different changes in the Arctic 
for instance, you know, the melting glaciers like uh, Greenland ice sheet and the mountain glaciers in the Arctic, that's going to disproportionately affect the folks living in coastal regions throughout the entire planet, more so than the folks living inside uh, in, uh, in the middle continents. Uh, the melting sea ice doesn't have direct impacts like on sea level rise, and it's going to mostly have impacts local to the Arctic and not have as many impacts to globally. But it's also going to affect the the Arctic food web, and particularly the marine food web. If you melt back the sea ice, now you're changing the habitat. And as you change the habitat for the phytoplankton, which kind of serve as the base of the marine food web, now you're impacting the, the fisheries and the fishing industry, the, available, the availability of um, food in that way, both for humans as well as for polar bears and other wildlife that depend on it. So I think it's true that, that the specific change we're talking about has some of the changes have more local impact and some of them have much more global impacts. So we also have the topic of Arctic amplification, which is that the Arctic warms way faster than any other region of the world. So could you explain to our listeners why does Arctic amplification happen in the first place? And what does that have to do with scientific concepts such as surface albedo? Yeah, absolutely. So sorry for a second if I geek out on this. This is a very sciencey topic. So this is kind of where I live. Um, so Arctic amplification is this uh, is a phenomenon that is a very robust feature of our climate system. You can see it over you know, paleoclimate uh, geologic time scales where anytime Earth's climate changed, it, it seems that the polar regions of our planet are more sensitive to those changes, meaning they change more. So if you have, uh, if the planet warms up, the, the Arctic warms proportionally more, and, and the polar regions, both the Antarctic and the Arctic, uh, warm more than the, than the rest of the planet. And similarly, if the planet cools down, the, the polar regions will cool, cool more. So that's the amplification aspect. So what we're seeing right now is uh, that the, the surface albedo feedback is the jargon term for it. But as the Arctic warms up, you warm the temperature and you start melting sea ice. But what we know about sea ice is that it's bright white. So it reflects, on any given day, it reflects a lot of sunlight back to space. And when you reflect sunlight back to space, it means that that sunlight is not absorbed and available to heat the surface. So if you have a lot of sea ice and it's really bright and does a lot of reflection of sunlight back to space, it's, it's going to keep the surface cooler. Now, as we warm the Arctic, uh, you're melting that sea ice back. Uh, underneath that sea ice is a much darker ocean. That darker ocean will now, instead of reflecting that sunlight, it's going to absorb it. And that's going to lead to a warmer Arctic surface. A warmer Arctic surface now is going to lead to uh, further warming. So this is this positive feedback or, or amplifying feedback loop where you warm the Arctic, you melt back sea ice, you absorb more radiation, which warms the Arctic even further, which melts more sea ice. So that's the primary mechanism. It's not the only mechanism, but that is one of the primary mechanisms that are leading to this uh, larger enhanced sensitivity to the Arctic, to the climate changes that we're seeing. So correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I'm hearing about its impact on fishing and its impact on like heating the surface of the Earth itself, it's very much impacting the energy budget of the Arctic differently than how it would impact somewhere else. Is that right? That's right. The, the, the primary role or primary way that sea ice influences uh, the a larger sensitivity, the enhanced sensitivity of the Arctic is through the changes in the surface energy budget and Earth's energy budget. It, it really comes down, if you want to predict climate or, or, and figure out how the climate's going to change, you really have to track how energy flows around the planet. That's really the key because more energy in 
then uh, then leaves the the planet, that's going to warm uh, the system, and that's that's fundamentally what increasing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere does. You increase carbon dioxide, more energy is is remaining in the Earth system than is able to leave at the top of the atmosphere. So whenever you have that type of imbalance, more in than out, uh, then you have a, a warming planet. To follow up on the question about Earth's energy budget changes, we also have clouds. And I think clouds are underestimated. What I mean is that clouds have an understated impact on our climate. So could you explain the relationship between clouds and wavelengths and how clouds cool and warm the Arctic? Yeah, so so clouds for me are near and dear to my heart because they're really the reason looking at them uh, in the sky like every day growing up, like in the fourth grade and onward is the reason why I, I kind of do what I do. It's where my interest in meteorology and climate kind of started. And it's interesting that you say that uh, clouds are underrated from maybe a, a more public perspective, because there's a lot of focus on clouds within the climate science community, because for uh, at least the last 30 years, we've really realized that our the our knowledge of clouds is a bit lacking. And that's one of the key reasons why we can't uh, predict or project our climate changes and understand what we call climate sensitivity or how much the arc, or the the planet will warm in response to increased carbon dioxide. Clouds are really at the heart of that uncertainty. Uh, and, and what we don't know is really a, a lot about the intricacies of what happens inside of clouds. But what we, we do know a lot about clouds and how they affect our planet and particularly the Arctic. Uh, and this has been an area that I've been researching for a better part of the last uh, eight years, really. So in in the Arctic and, and globally, clouds have really two effects. Uh, clouds are, are bright, right? They're white in the sky. And so that means they're reflecting a lot of sunlight. So if you have a lot of clouds, they have a similar, they can have a similar effect to the sea ice in, in the solar, in the sunlight by reflecting it back to space. And that will cool the surface similar to the sea ice. But clouds also have a second effect, which is what we, in what we call the, the long wave radiation or uh, the same radiation that our bodies actually give off. Because, you know, every object that has a temperature is, is producing radiation. So uh, the radiation that it's like heat, heat radiation, heat energy is, is one way you can think about it. So that effect of clouds actually is the opposite, where that will uh, tend to warm the surface by increasing the amount of energy that is being emitted from the cloud to the surface. You know, in the absence of clouds, what will happen is the surface, the energy from the surface that's being emitted in this heat energy, heat radiate, long wave radiation, heat energy will be lost to space. But in the presence of clouds, it's sort of like a blanket and it keeps that energy in the system and then warms the surface. So in the Arctic, what's really interesting is that because of the, the, uh, progression of sunlight throughout the annual cycle, throughout the full year, where you essentially have six months or so of daylight and followed by roughly six months or so of, of night, that means clouds have these two distinct effects uh, at different times of the year, where in summertime, clouds tend to be more of a, a cooling effect uh, on the surface, whereas in, in wintertime or in polar night, clouds tend to have a really strong warming effect on the surface. So clouds are generally stabilizers, almost, of climate, in the Arctic especially, but... Well, uh, not exactly. So in summertime, they are. So if you have more clouds in summertime, mm -hmm. that'll act to reflect the sunlight and can cool the surface. And so what that would actually do is help protect the sea ice, right? 
if we were seeing, if we were seeing, let me say it that way clearly, because I have research that shows that, that this isn't true actually, but if we were seeing that clouds were increasing in summertime in response to reductions in sea ice, that would actually help uh, reflect sunlight and, and um, protect the sea ice. However, what we're seeing with uh, what the NASA data has shown over the last decade is that we're finding no response of the clouds to sea ice, meaning, you know, as sea ice uh, retreats, we're not seeing clouds forming over that newly open sea, open water where there's now no ice. Uh, and so if that were happening, that would protect the ice, but that that's actually not the case based on, you know, the last 10 years of data that we have. Uh, however, alternatively, in, in nighttime, if you increase the amount of clouds, you're going to actually increase that, that blanket I mentioned a minute ago. So you're going to increase the amount of energy that's coming from the cloud layer into the surface, how, the, the amount of energy is being retained. And that actually is going to help warm the surface, which will slow sea ice growth. So when it's, when it's dark in the Arctic, actually I mean, clouds are slowing the, the ability of ice to grow. Because that's the season, that's the time of year where the sea ice really wants to grow and get really, really thick during polar night. So if you increase the clouds at that time of year, you're actually going to slow down the sea ice growth and help uh, and actually make the ice at the end of the winter growth season a little bit thinner. And that effect we're actually seeing is in the data where during polar night, when we have less sea ice, you are seeing the formation of clouds above those newly opened water or places where there used to be sea ice but now is water. We are seeing increases in clouds there. And that suggests that during that during the dark, the polar night, clouds are helping to kind of enhance the sea ice loss by slowing the growth of the sea ice. That's really interesting to think about, actually. So obviously, we talked about clouds. And we talked about kind of general changes within the Arctic itself. Now we should probably shift to how that impacts the globe worldwide. Like you mentioned, climate is very interconnected and nothing's ever kind of its own. So how would these changes in the climate in the Arctic that NASA has studied for so long um, impact the rest of the world? I think we touched on a few with like shipping and things. We did. I, I mentioned a few again, but you know, one of the most tangible ones that we're seeing right now is the increase in sea level rise. Because uh, I know I talked a lot about clouds and sea ice, but you know those things, as the Arctic warms, you're really you're melting the ice that's on land. So the Greenland ice sheet and the mountain glaciers. That's leading to rising seas uh, globally. Now there's a, another effect, uh, another connection that uh, between the Arctic and the rest of the globe that is actually influenced by the Greenland ice sheet melt is what we call the um, uh, the thermal haline circulation, or or uh, the sciencey term would be like the AMOC, which stands for the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation. It's this part of the ocean circulation that is taking water from you know the tropics and mid latitudes, lower latitude regions, and taking that energy and heat towards the Arctic, so transporting it northward. And so that's you know. A, a fundamental part of our climate system. And so what's happening though, is as the Greenland ice sheet is melting, that's influencing this circulation, it's affecting it and, and is contributing to a slowdown of this circulation. So slowing down that circulation is gonna influence how uh, the connections between the lower latitudes and the Arctic. And if you, in, if you change that circulation, you know, this the thermal haline circulation uh, in the ocean, uh, is a global phenomenon. And if you 
it's essentially a single conveyor belt that stretches around the world and, and weaves around the entire planet. If you influence it in one spot, it's going to have ripple effects everywhere else. So in a way, you know, changing those, influencing those ocean currents and uh, in the North Atlantic Ocean region uh, is going to have global impacts that way too by influencing the ocean circulation. So would that be kind of the explanation for things like the Gulf Stream slowing down? and other kind of currents slowing down. like That's mentioned. right. So the Gulf Stream is related to this Atlantic Meridiano overturning circulation. It's one branch of the of the circulation, you know, the more southerly branch that's just off the U.S. East Coast. Yeah, and th so those are, are directly related to each other. And, and also a really interesting uh, aspect of this, since we're on the U.S. East Coast, is that this slowing of that current could... Uh, actually amplify uh, sea level rise on the U.S. East Coast. Because the current exists, it actually pulls water in towards it, away from the East Coast uh, of the U.S. Now, if the current were to slow down, that effect would actually weaken, and you would actually see some water sloshing back toward the East Coast, uh, for, based on from where we are today. So, you know, all these effects are really interconnected. You know, the East Coast flooding is actually something interesting, because we've experienced some of it in Virginia, and I know Rhea specifically actually was doing some research on our own into it. It's interesting to see kind of the tangible effect of something that's so distant in the Arctic. Another sizable impact that I think happens in the Arctic is the melting of the land, which is permafrost melting, and that results in methane getting released. Can you explain to us, as well as our listeners, what happens after the methane gets released after so long? Absolutely. So, you know, in addition, you, you warm the Arctic, you're melting sea ice, you're melting land ice, but also there's another uh, kind of quote-unquote ice form in the Arctic, that's permafrost. So permafrost is, is land that's been frozen for at least two years, so it's less than zero degrees Celsius. Uh, some permafrost uh, has been frozen, and this land has been frozen for many, many thousands of years. And so uh, the permafrost uh, that's located in the Arctic contains you know, tens of thousands of years of dead plant and animal kind of uh, matter that's up there. And just like if you throw something in your freezer, right, you kind of freeze it, and now any sort of microbial action and decay of that uh, uh, of that the the of what you threw in the freezer, like broccoli, for instance, it kind of stops, right? <laughs> and so, but as soon as you start taking it out of the freezer, now the the broccoli, for instance, will start to kind of degrade a little bit and will get a little bit mushy. So what's happening in the Arctic with this permafrost, with with the permafrost, is that as it warms up, now you are uh, defrosting or thawing out the this plant and animal material that's been frozen for you know thousands of years, if not and, and longer than that, uh, and now it's being uh, becoming available for microbial decay. So little microbes can now chew on it. And so as these microbes break it down, part of the byproducts of this breakdown is both uh, carbon dioxide or methane. Uh, and the, the permafrost thaw is an additional kind of what we call climate forcing, meaning as you warm the surface and thaw the permafrost, now this extra microbial breakdown, microbial activity is releasing additional carbon dioxide and methane. Uh, which is a much more powerful greenhouse gas, but has a longer or shorter lifetime in the atmosphere. But both of these uh, gases then can lead to additional warming that will happen throughout the entire globe. So it's it's additional source of greenhouse gases in our climate system. 
That's important to note, I think, because there have been a couple of recent studies, especially that have really highlighted um, the impact methane has on um, climate change and the sea levels rising. So it's really interesting to finally understand that entire links chain. Ria, did you have anything else to add? Yeah, so I know a lot of our discussion has been focused on data, and NASA has collected hundreds of thousands or even millions of pieces of data on the climate. One of the things that I wanted to highlight is that we have the GRACE data from the Greenland and Iceland ice sheets. So I wanted to ask Dr. Taylor about data accessibility and how the public can gain a better understanding of this data to become climate scientists within their own communities. NASA is very much uh, interested in trying to uh, engage the public and, and kind of get the word out about our data. You know, one place certainly to go if to learn more would be a website called climate.nasa.gov uh, and it is a really great resource that has uh, excellent visualizations of a lot of these climate uh, our climate data and climate variables uh, with some uh, I think very accessible explanations as to what you're seeing and what what all this means and why it should matter for you so any listeners who are really interested in learning more certainly start at climate.nasa.gov uh, and keep an eye out for other NASA programs as we're, we're always uh, working to kind of engage the public uh, to, to kind of bring in citizen science when we can. Thank you for that, because we've really been trying to kind of highlight data accessibility to our listeners, because obviously this episode will talk a lot about the science behind it, but in case they want to learn anything more. So if you're listening, once again, this episode was really a block of science. But hopefully it really helps you understand the importance of some of the things you're seeing. I think it's com- a kind of a common motive to hear about like the polar, polar bears floating away on ice caps and Arctic sea melting and not really feel like it's having a tangible impact on climate change as a whole. So hopefully this episode gives you more insight into um, all these sort of link chains and interconnectedness within our entire ecosystem and climate changes in general. Anyways. And that's a wrap. Hopefully you've learned a bit about the environmental justice and the environment as a whole. And hopefully you've also had a cup of coffee. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Environmental Justice Coalition for updates on the podcast and send us a DM about how you like this episode. See you next time for another deep dive into another environmental justice topic.